Oscar Balper and the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. On this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. And what on July 30th, that is approximately 24 hours before the 2012 trade deadline, would Dave Cameron be talking about? Uh, in fact, that very same trade deadline that's only 24 hours away. In what follows, Cameron and I review the week that was in terms of transactions. For example, the Zach Greinke trade that sent the Brewers' right-handed starter to Los Angeles of Anaheim in exchange for three prospects. We also discuss trades that sent Wandy Rodriguez to Pittsburgh and also Hanley Ramirez and Randy Choate to the Los Angeles Dodgers. I asked Cameron not only about the prospects of Cliff Lee being traded to the Texas Rangers, but also how Lee's contract, which dictates that he's owed at least $75 million over the next three years, what that contract does for Lee's trade value. Uh, finally, we end by going over some names that have been invoked over the last couple days in terms of possible trades. Names like Ryan Dempster, Josh Beckett, and then uh, maybe half a dozen relief pitchers who may or may not be changing hands before Tuesday's deadline. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature our managing editor, Dave Cameron, and it begins, if you can believe it, right now. The Grinky deal was the biggest of them. Oh, that's right. You said you wanted to start off the podcast by uh, complimenting me on that post in which I more or less uh, predicted that, that trade. Didn't you say you, that you wanted to do something like that? Uh, no. I think you're hallucinating on many drugs again. You didn't send me – you didn't both send me an email and, a, and also a congratulatory text message with regard to that post I did that more or less nailed the Zach Grinky trade? Uh, no, I wouldn't congratulate you on really anything. No, I know you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Yeah. You wouldn't, Dave Cameron. Right. You're a tough customer. Uh, well, anyways, that trade did happen. It looks like, um, well, we don't know what the, the situation would have been between the Brewers and the Rangers necessarily. Although, I think you mentioned at some point that if if the Rangers were going to have made a deal between uh, Grinky and Hamels, they would have preferred Hamels. Uh, yeah, I think that was the, the general consensus, was that they preferred Hamill to Greinke, and Greinke was uh, a guy that they didn't have enough confidence in to give up a guy like Michael. Right. Now, looking at the trade, except for the fact that there were just three players as opposed to four, um, that trade seems to resemble, despite some of the new rules for free agent uh, compensation, seems to resemble some of the other ones we've seen in the past for a top Top end front, uh, you know, front lines sort of starters. Right, and I think the what we're seeing here is that the Angels are probably pricing in the fact that they think they can resign that Cranky. So, uh, in their mind, they're not necessarily trading for a rental. Uh, it's quite possible that they see this as, uh, you know, the ability to get Cranky for 2012 and the ability to exclusively negotiate with him before he becomes a free agent. I think if this was a pure rental and they were just going to borrow him and let him walk, the price would have been lower. Hey, so you mentioned the exclusive uh, negotiation period. Can, can you remind me again? Because that's always something that I remember when it's actually happening. Right. So teams have five days after the World Series ends uh, where they have exclusive negotiating rights, and then obviously they're allowed to negotiate with the player, you know, starting today. I mean, the Angels could start talking to Greinke about an extension now if they wanted to. So uh, they're the only team in baseball that can talk to them uh, about a contract until five days after the World Series ends. So they have a couple of months to you know, convince Cranky that he wants to play with Mike Trout and Albert Pujols, and he wants to be on a winning team, and he wants to play on the West Coast, and 
uh, you know, if the Angels uh, have a strong second half and you're going to keep it just pretty well, it might not be that hard of a sell. But from what we know, I mean, is there any indication that that the having that uh, that sort of period, the exclusive negotiating period, that actually gives the um, you know, I guess the the team in control, does that give them an advantage in signing a, a, a potential free agent? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's one of the things that's you know, impossible to quantify precisely without knowing, you know, being in the room for negotiations and hearing what the players have to say. But I do think that we've seen uh, teams acquire players and then, you know, resign them at a higher rate than, you know, they're able to sign players away in free agency. Uh, you know, I think the experience factor of, you know, getting to know the teammates, getting to know the situation um, is certainly something that uh, you, you see becomes uh, a legitimate reason for players to switch teams. I think, you know, Cliff Lee is obviously a hot name today. Uh, we saw that when, you know, the Phillies acquired him, he had such a good time playing in Philadelphia that even after they traded him away, he still wanted to go back. And he, when he was, next time he became a free agent, he went back to Philadelphia because he enjoyed his time there uh, in the few months that they had him after they acquired him from Cleveland. So uh, I do think that we have seen some evidence of teams acquiring players, convincing them that that's the place they want to stay and reaping long-term rewards from that. Okay, now I want to talk about Grinky in, in uh, Anaheim in a moment. Uh, in terms of the package going the other way, I guess it's Gene Segura, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, who is a shortstop maybe, um, maybe should be playing second base, although with Ricky Weeks around for a number of years uh, to come, it's, it's unlikely that that's where the Brewers haven't planned. They also got Ariel Pena, who despite... Uh, an underwhelming performance in the Futures game is actually a decent season. And then Johnny Helweg, who is a monster gentleman, uh, was terrible last year, the beginning uh, uh, beginning of last year in the California League, and then was excellent in the second half. Terrible again in the beginning half this year in Double A. Uh, seems to be pitching much better so far in the second half. I'm curious as to just your impressions of that. I, I mean, that package, does it seem reasonable for the Brewers? It seemed like they did something well there. Can I point out that in your little soliloquy there, you used the phrase uh, "monster package and gentleman." Yeah, that's what. That's, yeah. that's how we roll here. Come on, Dave Cameron. Yeah. So the, <laughs> uh, overall, I think the Brewers did pretty well. I think uh, Segura's a guy who, even if he's not fantastic completely shortstop, should be able to hit well enough to where he'll be above replacement level and potentially even be pretty good. Um, so I think you can afford to lose a little bit of defense if you can get a good bat in there and. Um, you know, so I think Figueroa is a guy that they can live with at shortstop for a few years, and Ricky Weeks isn't going to play forever, so if they need to move him to second base down the line, that's still a possibility. Um, and, you know, two higher-end pitching that are aspects, at least with Hellwig, it's a bit of a lottery ticket, but, you know, if he turns into something really good, uh, you know, that they would win this trade easily, I think. So uh, I think the Brewers have to be pretty happy with what they got. When you look at what they gave up for Granke, uh, they got something pretty similar in return, or at least, a, you know, not a package that's totally dissimilar from what they gave up to get him, and they got a year of Zach Ranky. So uh, I think overall the Brewers have to be happy with their series of acquisitions. Yeah, it's actually, I, w- I was thinking about that too. I mean, I guess I guess Alcides Escobar is probably, at least at the time he was traded, and has probably become, uh, you know, pr- would it be the best player if the, if you were to do, uh, do a deal for those three players from the Angels, um, you know, and the, and the players that the Royals got in the Granky trade. But... Uh, yeah, at some level, it, it was a pretty even trade, and then yeah, and then they got a, you know, you could say I don't know to what degree, but you know, they made the playoffs last year. Of course, they had an NL MVP in their team, but they also had a perennial Cy Young candidate in Zach Greinke. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime you can give up prospects for a player, 
uh, who else could get to the playoffs, uh, and then you retain control over that player, you get essentially a full season out of him, and then you trade him for something similar in prospects that you gave up, it's a clear win. So, um, you know, I was actually thinking in regards to, we found this with Cliff Lee a couple of years ago, where the uh, Phillies acquired him from the Indians uh, for a prospect package that was probably less than what the Mariners got for him when they traded him to Texas a year later. We now have two instances where, you know, players have been traded for not that much less value or potentially even the same amount of value with only a couple months left on their free agent or on their contract just when they had a year and a half left. And I'm wondering if, like, maybe the market isn't pricing uh, the difference in contract lengths appropriately to where, you know, a guy like Josh Johnson, maybe he's worth paying this super high premium for because as long as he doesn't have his arm fall off at some point in the next six months, you can trade him, uh, you know, next year and get most of your costs back. Do you think that that is in part what the um – what the Indians were thinking when they traded for Ubaldo Jimenez last year. Obviously, that has not gone the way that you know probably they were hoping it would. But they ended up trading. I mean, the package they gave away in Alex White and Drew Pomeranz, you know, while while not necessarily um, super great, is among the better contracts that that a frontline starter or that a team has gotten for a frontline starter. Or sorry, among the better deals that a team has gotten for a frontline starter. And so. I mean, was that sort of baked into Jimenez's uh, value as a as a tradable commodity? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the Indians probably didn't acquire him with the intention of trading him a year later. I think they were hoping that they'd be good this year and Jimenez would front their rotation along with Justin Masterson. But I do think they looked at him as a buy-low candidate and said, hey, you know, this is a guy who a year ago would have commanded a significantly larger return if we can get him out of Colorado and get him in front of a better defense. Uh, and his numbers improve, uh, even if we don't want if it doesn't work out for us and we're not contenders, we can probably flip him for more if we can get his stock back out. So um, I do think that there's something to be said for teams acquiring players like this who have, you know, time to establish even more value and time to become, you know, a, a high-priced rental uh, in the final year of their contract where if you can, you know, make that kind of trade and, you know, recoup most of your costs before the guy walks in free agency, maybe these are the kind of moves the team should be looking to make more often. Right. Okay. And now, and just today, uh, we're recording on Monday. This go up on Monday. Uh, just today, you wrote about Grinky and the sort of effect he might have on the Angels uh, while he's there. I'm curious. Now, you've already mentioned from their perspective uh, that, in part, they might have been trading for the right to negotiate with him. Uh, in terms of wins and losses, in terms of making the postseason, what does Grinky represent for them? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, Greg is probably about a one-win upgrade over what they had. Uh, you know, Irvin Santana's a bad. Garrett Richards is not pitched as well as VRA suggests. So replacing one of those two uh, with Granky is going to be a real upgrade. Um, I question how much of an upgrade he's going to be in the postseason, though. I mean, Jerome Williams is a, you know, capable enough number four starter where if you had to run him out there for four or five innings in game four of a playoff game before you turned it over to your bullpen, it's not the end of the world. And, you know, you had a number three starter and Dan Aaron is now going to get bumped back to the number four spot, which means he would only pitch once in a seven-game playoff series, even if he went the distance. And so, you know, if you're looking at Granke and saying, okay, for this team, how much of an upgrade is he? You know, one win in a regular season is, you know, it's nice. And if they can run down the Rangers and it's the difference between the division and the wild card, then it's a, you know, then it's worth it because the, you know, the new system really rewards winning your division. But once again, the playoffs, I, I guess we've seen, you know, with the Phillies and the Braves, rotation depth just isn't all that important. And, you know, what we saw last year 
is the rotation in general isn't all that important with the you know emptying of the bullpens and leaning really heavily on relievers. I'm just not sure that you need four high quality starting pitchers in October. I mean, you know, I'm not sure you need three to be honest. I think if the the goal is really to be able to hit uh, and have a couple good starters and a ridiculously good bullpen. And if you have that kind of formula. I think you have a better chance than if you have four good starting pitchers. Well, yeah, and this reminds me, I believe it was a series, it might have been a, uh, playoff, uh, some sort of playoff run for the Yankees. It might have been when they faced the Phillies or maybe leading up to that, that World Series, in which some absurd percentage of their postseason innings uh, for the Yankees were, were pitched by CC uh, Sabathia. Yeah, it was like three or four guys, right? And Mariano Rivera guys, was yeah. was certainly one of those guys. Yeah, I mean, they they, they totally nailed that. Yeah, I think the one point when I wrote the post, the Yankees, I think it was 2010, uh, they might have been 2011. They had uh, their top three starters and Mariano Rivera combined for 80 percent of their innings, and it was like everyone else on the staff was totally inconsequential. Now that was, uh, you know, a, a situation where there were off days that allowed them to only use a three-man rotation, and that's usually not going to be the case. Uh, in most playoff series, but even still, I think what we've seen is that the number four starter is a pretty marginal asset in the playoffs. Uh, a lot of times, you know, if you get to that game four and you're down three games to nothing, you're going to empty the bullpen anyway. You're not going to let your number four starter uh, dig a big hole when you're facing an elimination game. So, uh, And then, if you know, if you're up three games to nothing, you're probably already going to win that series no matter what he does. So there's a lot of situations where that number four starter just doesn't really matter. And so what's the – I mean, obviously there's some benefit to having four good starters, but it is – is it more of an effect in the regular season then, if you can start from the beginning of the season? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that number four starter is just as valuable as the number one starter in the regular season because, you know, you need 32 starts, 33 starts from at least four guys. The fifth starter spot's going to get a few less because you can skip him if you want. But, you know, the top four starters are definitely important in the regular season. Uh, but the playoff series, the way it's structured, the way you can lean on your bullpen, the travel days, uh, they really make it that this, the number four starter is not nearly as important um, it's a, it's just a marginalized role. And so, you know, for the Angels to make an upgrade to where they're essentially marginalizing Dan Heron, and maybe they know something about Dan Heron that we don't, and his velocity is down, and they're worried that he's not going to be able to pitch well in the playoffs, and those are all valid reasons to go acquire a guy like Zach Greinke. But if Dan Heron is, you know, the Dan Heron that he's been before, they just marginalize a pretty good pitcher. Okay. Um, I want to talk about uh, some of the other trades we've seen over the course of the last week. But before I do that, I want to get to these Cliff Lee rumors we're seeing today. Uh, there are suggestions, Buster Only was reporting from ESPN, uh, that, that Cliff Lee uh, could have some interest for the Rangers, uh, that Mike Olt might be part of that. Now, one thing I'm really curious about, and I actually have a post going up at 1.30, or sorry, 2.30 uh, Eastern on this, and it's actually going to be up by the time we, we even end recording, but... Uh, I, I consider briefly in it, although I don't think as thoroughly as I would have liked to, the significance of Lee's contract to a trade like this. On the one hand, you say, well, there's some advantage to the team acquiring uh, Cliff Lee possibly because, um, you know, they have control over him. Over the, he's not just a rental. They're not just giving up, you know, two, three, four prospects for a rental. But on the other hand, um, he's not necessarily a deal. He's not what potentially – um, Obaldo Jimenez, uh, you know, could have been for the for the Indians in that particular case. He signed, you know, to what is probably a market type deal um, with maybe extra, in- you know, um, interest to a team that's trying to lock up a division title because that marginal win is important. So I'm curious, though, for you, uh, what are some sort of uh, what's the added meaning of that? You know, those extra three, four, five years on his contract. 
Well, I think in Lee's case, they're probably negative value. So I think, you know, he's got 375 guaranteed after this year. And then 2016 is a little strange. It's a $27.5 million team option with a $12.5 million buyout. So it's a $15 million decision, essentially, uh, whether you want to pay him to play for you or pay him to go away. Uh, so the contract is either uh, 388 or 4103. Uh, that's, I would say, above market value uh, for a 33-year-old pitcher who's, um, you know, pitching well, but a little less well than he did last year. His strikeout rate's a little bit down. His home run rate's up. Most of that's homer to fly ball rate. But, you know, I think we, with Lee, we've seen as, uh, he's a guy who throws a lot of strikes and has been prone to giving up hits and home runs in previous years. He's done a pretty good job holding down his home runs uh, recently. But he's given up a lot of hits, and this year he's giving up a lot of home runs. And, uh, you know, so I do wonder whether he would get you know, a contract of that size, even with the inflation that we've seen, I think, uh, you know, 388, 4103, that's probably above market value. So the Phillies, if they're going to trade quickly, you're probably going to have to pay part of that contract. Uh, and I think to get a Mike Olds or someone of that type, they're going to have to pay a lot of that contract. Right. So you think it's it, it's sort of a negative. Um, but uh, it, how how much of a negative, I guess? You said, like, you could still potentially get Michael. Like, how much of the contract do you think they'll have to pay? I mean, will, will essentially the amount that they cover be the amount that brings it down to market value? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we've seen previously. Is, you know, teams figure out, okay, this is what I would pay for this guy, and if you want a good prospect, then I want a discount on that. So, you know, if the Rangers said, hey, if Cliff Lee was a free agent right now and we could sign him today, what would we give him over four years? We'd probably give him, you know, 80, maybe 85, something like that. So there's a you know twenty million dollar difference. So we want the Phillies to cover twenty million just to get some market value. If they want Mike Holt, maybe it's thirty million. I think that you know my guess would be if this trade goes through, uh, the Phillies are going to do something like they'll pay the buyout of that 2016 year. Um, so that's twelve and a half million, and then maybe pick up five million a year in the salary in order to get him down to you know twenty million a year for the next three years. And then the Rangers are basically getting him for three sixty. And at three sixty, I think they would say, okay, you know, we'll give you Mike Holt for that. Okay. Now, with regard to that, I was uh, I had occasion, of course, to look at the Phillies. Um, you know who they have under contract likely for next year uh, and in the future, just to you know to try and uh, get a sense of what their needs might be. Um, they don't necessarily have a very good farm system right now, so uh, they don't really have a lot of people being blocked. I guess as it is, maybe Sebastian Valley is a decent catching prospect. Maybe Larry Green, although he's not even 20 years old yet, an outfield prospect. Um, they're a weird team in that they have the like the majority of their money in terms of um, uh, in terms of players they have assigned to long-term deals. They have it invested in in a mobile uh, first baseman who's coming off kind of um, difficult injury, and then their closer, uh, and that's about it. Um, but they have a lot of other openings. I mean, do you see the Phillies uh, contending as soon as 2013, or is it further off for them? No, I think they can bounce back next year. I mean, they just did Riesel, Fag, Cole, Hamill, so I don't think we can ignore the fact that, you know, they've invested long-term in one of the better young pitchers in baseball as well. I mean, I guess Hamill isn't that young anymore, but, you know, better pitchers in general. Um, I think, you know, this year the Phillies' problems have essentially been due to injuries. Uh, Howard and Utley missed the first few months of the season. Roy Halladay's missed a couple months in the middle. Um, this is a team that, you know, lost a lot of value, and they didn't have the depth to replace those guys. Uh, you know, they, they, they poor roster construction on tomorrow's point have to you know run guys like Kyle Wigginton and Freddie Galvis out there every day. But uh, you know, I think injuries played a big role in the Phillies fall this year. Um, and this is a team that, you know, with better health next year could be a contender again. And so um, you know, when I wrote my piece about the Cole Hamels extension, my point was that the Phillies have already bet on the 
on the present and at the expense of the future, and I don't think they should be going backtracking on that decision now. And so, you know, if I'm the Phillies, I, even if I'm got a guy like Michael, I don't know that I'm trading quickly because, uh, you know, I think the Phillies have bet really heavily on this core group with Ellie and Howard and Papelbon and Halliday and Lee and Hamels and this, guy, this group of guys. So for them to start trading the present for the future, uh, it might be undoing both of both their value now and, you know, the value they've already punted in the future when they couldn't win in either spot. Now, so the, the Phillies do have a mutual option on Placido Polanco next year, I think for like $5.5 million or something. Polanco is probably not a third baseman on a championship-type club anymore, although at $5.5 million, he could be a piece um, and not necessarily a starter. Do, do you think for them, you know, like the question of getting Mike Olt, is it is it is it is really uh, maybe a question that they're asking is is it easier to sign a third baseman or a starting pitcher on uh, the, the free agent market? Uh, it's possible. I mean, if they see Michael as an everyday third baseman who can take over next year and be productive, uh, then I think you can make a case and say, okay, you know, let's move quickly, let's save some money, uh, let's use that money to sign a pitcher to replace quickly. We'll take the downgrade in the rotation. We'll take an upgrade at third base, and we'll come back and try and win. I mean, I think that's a valid argument. Uh, I wonder if if that was the plan, would they not have been better off trading Cole Hamels to try and get Michael and keeping Cliffley? I mean, it's a, a question of how much are you paying for that pitching spot. If you're paying Cole Hamels $24 million a year and then you're paying Cliff Lee $5 million a year to not pitch for you, maybe you would have just been better off not paying Cole Hamels and not and keeping Cliff Lee and getting Michael that way. Okay. All right, let's look at some uh, trades that have happened. It, I, I, I'm going to use the word fun, and I... I regret it, but I, I think one of the more fun trades uh, is the one that that saw the Pirates give away uh, Wandy, uh, or sorry, acquire Wandy Rodriguez for uh, left-handed pitcher Rudy Owens, outfielder Robbie Grossman, and whoever Colton Kane is. Uh, the the Pirates now kind of have four good starters. Uh, uh, Bedard's been up and down, but he's decent. He's probably better than any number one starter the Pirates have had in recent years. Uh, add to that AJ Burnett, James McDonald, and now Wandy Rodriguez. That's not a miserable rotation. No, it's not. And you know, uh, McDonald has been bitten by the regression period the last couple of weeks, and his you know his command has gone to hell. So you know, I don't know exactly that they know what to expect from him the rest of the year. But you know, with Bedard and Burnett and Wandy, they've got three curveball artists at the front of the rotation that all have big knockout curveballs and can be solid pitchers for them. Uh, I think the Pirates are probably wise to make a move like that, where they're not giving up a ton of talent. Um, I like the fact that they didn't mortgage their future, considering the Reds have gotten hot and won 10 in a row and they're starting to fade a little bit. So I do think the Pirates, you know, should continue to try and contend and maybe see if they can steal a wild card berth or, you know, maybe the Reds will fall apart. Um, so I don't think the Reds should be sellers, or the, I don't think the Pirates should be sellers. Uh, however, I do think it's wise that they're, you know, buying in an intelligent way. What's the difference between uh, this Pirates team as opposed to last year's, not just in terms of uh, the talent they have on the team, but also the way they've approached the, the trade deadline, if, if there is well, any think, difference. Yeah, I mean, I think the main difference is Andrew McCutcheon. Uh, he went from being a good player to being a, you know, the best player in baseball this year, essentially, or at least the best player in the National League. Um, so I think, you know, with McCutcheon having this kind of crazy good year, uh, and then they do have Burnett and Bedard, who they didn't have last year. Uh, they're pitching better. I think the team overall is just better. Um, and, and when you get a year like this from McCutcheon and your fans are, you know, excited about the team again and their attendance is up, I think this is the kind of uh, season you want to try and take advantage of. I mean, I know 
my position on this has shifted a while. So I remember back in 2003, I believe the Marlins traded for uh, Ivan Rodriguez or signed him as a free agent. They acquired him somehow, and uh, I didn't understand why they would be spending that money on a one-year rental of an older guy when they weren't really contenders in that division. And then they went on to win the World Series. And so, you know, I think that there's, uh, you know, well, I mean, we guess we had this argument, too, with Edwin Jackson before the season. You didn't love that signing for the Nationals because you didn't think they were going anywhere. And I kind of argued that, you know, you never know really where a bubble team, a 500 team is going and how players are going to play. And I think, you know, we've seen for the Nationals acquiring Edwin Jackson was a really good move and is uh, probably going to help put them in the playoffs. So I think when you're one of these bubble teams and you have a chance to, to make a move that will uh, help you for the, the present and doesn't cost you a big part of your future, it's worth making. All right, so so that's the uh, the Pirates contract. You re- you mentioned right that they that they've uh, perhaps faded in recent days. I guess what's the sort of wins threshold it's, uh, it, that it will be required to get even that second wild card spot? I think actually the Pirates uh, the Pirates seem to to have um, the first overall place in the wild card right now, and uh, I guess the Braves are second with fifty seven wins. Uh, what what ultimately is it going to take? Well, I think historically the second wild card team, if it had been in existence, would have come around 89 wins. Um, that's usually what the team with the fifth best record in each league has had over the last 15 years or so. Um, so I think that's a fair estimate. We might see that number bump up just a little bit now that teams on the bubble have incentive to be buyers rather than holders or sellers. So maybe it'll be 90 wins. But I think it's going to be in that 89-90 win range uh, to get one of the two playoff spots. Okay. And do, and do you like the Phillies for that? Or sorry, not the Phillies. Do you like not the Phillies at all? Do you like the Pirates for that? No, probably not. I think uh, the Cardinals are still better than the Pirates. They're not that far behind, but I don't think they can catch them. I think the Braves are better. Uh, and, you know, I think whatever team doesn't win out in the National League West between the Dodgers and Giants is probably a little bit better. So uh, the Pirates could certainly win it. They're in the mix, but I, I wouldn't call them the, the favorites. Okay, uh, let's see. Other moves that have happened. I guess there was the uh, well, there's the Hanley Ramirez move, or should we call it the Randy Chote move? Uh, well, I think the Randy Choate move sounds like some kind of like wrestling thing, right? Yeah, uh, it could. Randy Choate sounds and uh, looks like a, a wrestler, perhaps. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's up to you. Uh, well, I'm not like an expert on what wrestler look like. No, I guess not. Um, but uh, I don't know. Anyways, uh, I don't even know what position Hanley Ramirez is playing for them. Whether he's been playing short or third. Uh, I believe he's been playing short stop. Okay, so that's I don't know. That's a thing. I don't know if he's more valuable there or just as valuable at shortstop. I mean, he's probably valuable to the Dodgers in the sense that I don't think they've gotten um, – in the sense that they seem not to have gotten a lot of value out of shortstop, although I'm not sure how much they've gotten out of third base either. Right. I think it's one of those things where it doesn't really matter. Hanley Ramirez is a bad defender no matter where you put him because it's more about effort and focus than tools. So, um, you know, they move him to third base. Usually you move a guy down the defensive spectrum, he gets better. Hanley didn't get any better at third base. So uh, I think, you know, if you put Hanley at shortstop and you just live with the bad defense, uh, it's not a terrible idea. Uh, even when D. Gordon comes back, I would I would say, you know, the Dodgers should probably just leave Hanley there and, you know, put D. Gordon on the bench with a pinch runner. Okay, um, and does Hanley, uh, does he help their uh, their chances of getting to playoffs at all? I mean, you said Greinke's worth a game. I'm going to assume, uh, well, I would have assumed, I guess, that Ramirez isn't worth it, but if they haven't had anything, if he's replacing very little, then maybe he's worth something. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's about a one-win upgrade, but that's mostly because they had absolutely a black hole at shortstop. So, you know, mm-hmm. Greinke's only worth a win because he's replacing guys who are 
not great, but not horrible. D. Gordon is one of the worst players in baseball this year. So uh, I think Hanley helps the Dodgers, and especially, you know, he's looked pretty good since he got to L.A. Maybe he is one of those change of scenery guys. If he gets back to being the Hanley Ramirez of old, he could really help the Dodgers. But I think, you know, a one-win estimate is probably fair. Uh, two wins if he goes bananas. It's probably a similar upgrade to what uh, the Dodgers gave up, or the Angels gave up to get Granky. Okay. Uh, let's see. Other baseball things. Uh, Francisco Liriano, acquired by the White Sox. To start, presumably? Yes. Okay. Uh, they said they're going to a six-starter thing for a while, but I think that won't last very long. They'll eventually tire of most likely Philip Humber and kick him into the bullpen. Yeah, right. Uh, is this a, an appropriate time uh, to, to make reference to your article uh, written in the wake of Philip Humber's perfect game that, that Philip Humber's success isn't a fluke? Yeah, it's never a good time to reference that article. <laughs> do you, do you do you still think that you were using sound uh, sound judgment and logic at the time? Sure, I mean I always think that, right? Like you know, I guess that's the <laughs> you are, yeah, you the, do. That head vote. We only look at process and then we ignore any results that don't agree with our preformed <laughs> opinions. Uh, you know, I think like there is reason to believe that Philip Humber had legitimately improved. His strikeup numbers were going way up. He'd added the cutter. Don Cooper fixed people before. Uh, then he immediately just disintegrated into terribleness. Uh, I, I mean, I would say it's too early to say for sure that Humber is this bad. He did spend some time on the disabled list. For all we know, he could be hurt. Um, or he could just have reverted to being bad. I mean, certainly that post doesn't look all that hot. Well, right? he had been, uh, I believe he had come from the Royals, right? And hadn't he pitched decently for the Royals? Not, not the best. Oh. He, he was a guy who uh, has bounced around been with a bunch of the teams. He's been with the Twins for a while. Uh, he was uh, basically a replacement level pitcher, and then some point last year something clicked and he started getting strikeouts, and it started continued early this year. And you know, only in the perfect game, and you know, it really looked like kind of the rising trend of a pitcher had gotten better, and then he got horrible. Yeah. Okay. Well, sorry about that. Um, yeah. Now let, let's end. Uh, let's end on um, maybe uh, on wild speculations. I don't know how you feel about those, but uh, I am a huge fan. Uh, there are a number of names uh, being invoked as you know potential uh, trade targets uh, by teams. Uh, I mean, maybe the most interesting, even if uh, even if it you know may not happen, is probably Josh Beckett, who is uh, well, I don't know, he's a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. I guess it's interesting because. You don't consider the Boston Red Sox sellers generally. Although, of course, we heard their name invoked in a possible trade uh, involving Carl Crawford too. So, you know, maybe uh, this is becoming a greater possibility than than it has in in uh, recent seasons. Uh, yeah, but I think the reality of the Red Sox are just you know doing their due diligence. Uh, they've got some bad contracts in the books, including Beckett's. And you know, when they see that the Marlins were able to give away all of Anthony Ramirez's entire deal and get a you know real prospect in return. They probably decided that it wouldn't hurt them to, you know, see if anyone wanted to take Josh Beckett off their hands. And sounds like the answer is probably no. Uh, you know, they could probably trade Beckett if they ate a lot of the salary, but I don't think anyone wants Beckett at 2.30 uh, for the next couple of years. And, you know, Beckett's velocity is down, his strikeout rate is down, uh, his golfing game is up, but that's probably not a good thing. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't know that anyone's going to be beating down the Red Sox door to take Josh Beckett or Carl Crawford. Um, you know, I think Boston's just a tough spot where they've got a lot of overpaid, underperforming players. Yeah, they do. And let's see, uh, another thing. Uh, oh, Ryan Dempster is another starting pitcher. Seems sort of well positioned as a uh, 
potential uh, rotation upgrade for for a team, although um, it, it seemed as though there was a trade in place for him last week between the Cubs and the Braves, and that never happened, and largely because uh, Ryan Dempster has 10 and 5 rights, which allows him to sort of control the process. Do you, do you see Dempster ending up on, a, on another team, you know, uh, over the next couple of days? Well, it seems like he wants to play for the Dodgers, and the Dodgers need a starting pitcher, and the Cubs want to trade him. So, I mean, this is, uh, you know, one of those stare-downs that I think is going to go down to the wire, but eventually the Cubs will blink and just take whatever the Dodgers' best offer is. Uh, my guess is the Dodgers will offer more in return than, you know, the draft pick valuation that the, Dodgers, the Cubs could get by uh, making him a qualifying offer as a free agent, but... Um, so I think at some point the Dodgers and Cubs will just come to an agreement and uh, send Ryan Dempster to Los Angeles where he wants to play. Okay, and was it, what, what is that going to take? I mean, who does who do, who do the Dodgers have? Do they still have Jerry Sands? Does Jerry Sands still play uh, there? Alan Webster? He does. Right, Sands is not good. Uh, Alan Webster, I believe they asked for it, was turned down, according to reports. Originally, they asked for Zach Lee, that was shot down. So it seems like the Cubs are aiming for some of the Dodgers' better pitching prospects. The Dodgers kind of understand they have all the leverage here thanks to Dempster's and five right so they're saying no um, but I would imagine at some point tomorrow they'll find a middle ground and say okay maybe we're not going to give you exactly your Alan Webster but we'll give you this other collection of interesting players yeah well, so what is that how does that happen I, mean, I don't know if you know or not but like is that Steve I've seen just uh, talking with Nick Clay like hey uh, Zach Lee and Nick Clay is like nah and then he's like uh, uh, Alan Webster and Nick Clay is like nah and then they're like, all right, I'll give you a call later. Is that what it happens? Well, my understanding, I've never been a GM, so I can't say for sure, and I'm sure every team is different, but my understanding is that a lot of this stuff, the negotiations take place between non-GM participants. So, you know, assistant GMs or scouts might get the ball rolling. Uh, you know, maybe uh, Jed Hoyer, who I guess is actually the GM in Chicago, um, it would, might call, you know, uh, someone with the Dodgers and say, hey, you know, uh, obviously, we're working on the Stemster thing. How much do you like these guys? And kind of get a feel. And that, you know, in that conversation, they'll be like, "No, these guys are off limits." And then, you know, Dempster talk. If you want to talk about Garza, then we, you know, be willing to talk about those guys. But instead of it, I don't get the sense that it's back and forth. I will give you this for that, as much as it is a conversation about figuring out who's available. And then once they kind of, you know, the assistants gather some names and be like, "Hey, these guys are kind of interesting, and we kind of like them," then maybe the GM calls the other GM and says, "Okay." Uh, here's what we're offering, but I think that those calls are probably less frequent than you might assume. Yeah, okay. Uh, now, let's see. We said uh, we talked uh, Beckett, Dempster. Are there any other guys that uh, look very likely to be to be moving at the deadline? Well, I think there's a ton of relief pitchers that are out there. So, uh, you know, Jonathan Broxton has been talked about, Brandon Lee has been talked about. I think you're going to see uh, a bunch of teams with, uh, you know, middle relief setups guys or guys who are closing but would be a middle relief for a contender, uh, I think you're going to see a bunch of those guys move. You're going to see a lot of those marginal back-end fifth-starter types uh, get traded, so I think you'll see Kevin Millwood on the move. Uh, there's going to be a lot of non-impact guys getting traded, so I think, you know, Greg Hughes was obviously the big name, and Hamels would have been if he hadn't resigned. so um, with those two out of the picture, I think the next 36, 48 hours are going to be mostly complimentary players. The biggest name of guys left who might go is probably Hunter Pence. Um, but overall, I think you're going to be kind of a, a lot of role players. And uh, one one player that will not be traded, one relief pitcher that will not be traded, presumably, is Houston Street, a closer for a team that is in last place, at least I think they're in last place, San Diego Padres, who um, was just resigned or extended by two years. Yeah, 
I don't really get what those parties are doing. I gotta be honest. Like, trading for Carlos Clinton and trading for Houston Street was weird. But you could kind of make an argument that, hey, you know, Houston Street's a fly ball guy, give him the pet coat, build up his value, trade him at the deadline for prospects. Well, that, that doesn't make sense if you have any that's gonna resign him. So, you know, I mean, you, we made fun of the Phillies a little bit for their roster construction of an immobile first baseman and a closer. And basically what the Padres have done just without all the other good talent around them. So, uh, you know, what San Diego is up to, I couldn't really tell you. <laughs> yeah, I do. it is uh, surprising um, because they also, they they seem to have a lot of uh, potential relief talent there. You know, I mean, they have, uh, I think Luke Regerson's pitching considerably better um, than, he, uh, than he did last year. And then you have um, players like Bradley Boxberger and Brad Brock and probably other... Yep. Other pitchers with the uh, B initials, and then um, you know they have a surplus. They were able to trade Ernesto Frieri. It just seems like it just seems like relief pitchers aren't the problem for them. And if you could get anybody, because because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but relief pitchers are not even they're not eligible for any sort of uh, compensation at this point for for the team that loses them. Uh, well, it all depends on the amount of uh, the offer you'd make them. But no one was going to give Houston Street 12 in many years, right? They wouldn't have gotten any compensation for letting Houston Street walk. Uh, the thing that I just find weird is, if you were to ask a Padres fan, would they rather watch Carlos Quentin in Houston Street or Adrian Gonzalez? The answer is obviously Adrian Gonzalez. Uh, the Padres basically traded away Adrian Gonzalez because they couldn't afford to give him the money that they just gave to Quentin in the street. It's, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it's pretty close. I don't think anyone in the world would trade Adrian Gonzalez for Houston Street and Carlos Quentin. Uh, and they sure they shouldn't, you know. So um, for the Padres to, you know, trade away a guy who was from there, was MVP candidate, was the face of their franchise, and say, hey, look, we can't afford to have this kind of player on our team, but we can afford to have a mediocre outfielder and a highly paid closer. Is bad roster construction. All right. Well, I think this is all. Uh, this is all that we can say. This is. I think we're done here. Do you have anything you need to say, Cameron? Well, I've got a post going up later this afternoon that I uh, never thought I would write, but I'm going to praise the savvy of Kenny Williams. Uh, I think, you know, we barely touched on it in the Liriano thing, but you, do we realize that Kenny Williams basically put together a team of other players uh, or uh, of players that other teams didn't want? And he took Alex Rios off waivers and was having a really good year. Uh, he got Jake Peavy for nothing because he was hurt and the Padres just wanted to get rid of the contract. He got Kevin Euclid because they didn't get along with the manager and he's old. Uh, and now you got Francisco Liriano because of the Twins. I, I don't really understand that trade for the Twins, i got to be honest. But well, Kenny Williams has basically built the contending roster out of scraps. Yeah, actually, uh, with regard to Liriano, um, Matthew Corey over at Baseball Prospectus today noted in whatever this sort of uh, their uh, power ranking situation, uh, Francisco Liriano l- uh, leaves the Twins um, having recorded 100 strikeouts and um, he's the odds-on favorite to be the leader at the end of the season, uh, to be the team leader at the end of the season in strikeouts as well. Uh, yeah, I think the Twins pitching staff without Liriano was bad. It wasn't great with Liriano. It's going to be abominable without it. Right, but at least Liriano, I mean, he's one of the strangest pitchers. I don't know. Uh, I remember at one point uh, one of our writers did a, 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 a piece or a series maybe on uh, the, the most and least consistent players. In terms of pitching, uh, it seems to start to start, or maybe, you know, Liriano just has these stretches of excellence and then stretches of, of whatever the opposite of excellence is. Yeah, well, I mean, he's kind of had his velocity come and go over the years due to arm injuries and health and just, you know, various weird things. 
So he's definitely not a guy that I would want to give like a three-year contract to. But the White Sox got him for nothing. I mean, like the guys the White Sox gave up was bad, and the Twins were marketing a left-handed pitcher who throws 94 miles an hour, gets ground balls and strikeouts, uh, and has been pretty good for the last couple of months. And they traded him for scraps. I mean, just absolute nothingness. And so. Uh, you know, for Kenny Williams to have, you know, the worst farm system in baseball by a mile and get Kevin Euclid and uh, Francisco Liriano, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if this is like a, a what you'd call a model, but you, you mentioned uh, he's just done a good job at taking players who, who have been talented, who have produced, uh, but for whatever reason have had uh, difficulties in the present, and uh, he's assembled that entire team. So, uh, from yeah, that, I mean, you know, it, largely it, from that. Kenny Williams is kind of what a GM would be uh, if you if you were a GM and you really believe in regression to the mean. You'd be Kenny Williams. You're constantly finding guys who have been good are doing bad. You take them and then watch them do good again. So, but what's what's to have prevented from the other 29 organizations from from doing the exact same thing? I mean, I'm sure they do. On a smaller level, you know, maybe it's just random that somehow Kenny Williams has benefited to, to this degree. But it, as you're mentioning, it does seem as though this is this has been systematic in some way. Why wouldn't the other 29 teams do this? Well, I think what we see is you know a lot of the smaller record teams can't afford the guys that he's going after. So the PV and the Rios contracts were pretty large, and we're going to price them out of you know Oakland and Tampa Bay and Cleveland aren't going to be interested in the player who makes that much money. Um, for the bigger market teams, they're generally not dumpster diving. They're spending on, you know, guys who are coming off good years and they don't want to take on the risk. So the White Sox are in this interesting middle segment where they have a large payroll and they're willing to be extremely willing to take on risk in terms of performance. So they're the ones that are loading up on all these guys uh, where they're saying, okay, we're going to bet on this guy bouncing back because it's not going to cost us anything in talent. Okay, um, I want to close now then, finally. Uh, but I would like to say uh, now – uh, presumably, uh, or let's say hypothetically that um, this trade that I or this you know, hypothetical trade I've posted uh, involving Cliff Lee, if I if I call that one too, uh, will I be able to, to receive anything in the way of uh, of compliment from you? Well, I think if you're writing for Fangraphs in order to receive adulation from the masses, you are uh, <laughs> no from you from you. You're not, are you the masses? I am I mean, part of the masses. Yes, <laughs> I am part of the masses. You're part of the vulgar crowd, huh? Yes, right. Oh. I, I just don't think that any writer for Fangraphs should be thinking, hey, I'm going to write this post, and then people are going to love it, and then they're going to love me. That's uh, that's bad motivation, and you're going to lead. It's going to lead to disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I guess looking. Yeah, looking for appreciation from from that crowd is difficult. Well, that's why I try and sort of insulate uh, the majority of my posts in. Uh, in uh, hard to penetrate language, so that uh, people give up immediately. They don't make it to the end. I mean, they used to. Right. Uh, they they used to, you know, just scroll to the bottom and say terrible post. But I, I think that um, in the, in this particular face-off, I've uh, I've outlasted them. <laughs> uh, I've outendured them. Right. You you've broken their will. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So they just ignore it entirely, which I'm sure uh, right. founder of of Fangraphs, uh, David Alvin loves. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're happy to, uh, to be paying you to alienate and uh, ignore yeah. what the, what the majority of the readers. Yeah, well, good. Glad we've established that. Yeah. All right, Cameron, let me go edit this podcast. In the meantime, though, uh, keep being you, I guess. Thanks for joining us. I don't know. 
They don't really have a choice, right? No, I guess not. All right. Well, that's Dave Cameron, our managing editor. Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.